in our continuing tour of Michael trying to ruin your favorite Christmas carols, turn to Matthew chapter 2. As this week we'll be addressing we three kings of Orient are. All of which the descriptors are wrong. Matthew chapter 2, in all seriousness, this is the Word of God. And when the Holy Spirit wrote it, He had you in mind this morning. And He ordained this for your good. God's Word, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Then they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. O God, give life and light to your word, but specifically to our hearts. Your word is perfect. We fall far short. Give understanding, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Famous bit of wisdom proverb from Aesop. He said years and years and years and years and years ago, a man is known by the company he keeps. A man is known by the company he keeps. That's been changed around, I guess, probably today, uh, said a little bit more frequently, you can judge a man 
by the company he keeps. I was taught this a lot as a kid and, and really how helpful it is to, you can look around at a person and see what kind of people they surround themselves with and kind of get a gauge on to, as to what their character is like, right? If you have a steady string of bad friends constantly su- surrounding you, uh, odds are you're going to have a really hard time um, loving the Lord God or whatever and, and, and kind of getting a sense of stability in your life. The, the interesting thing is that Aesop couldn't be more wrong when it comes to the Lord Jesus, if you kind of go from the judging aspect of it. It's how the Gospel of Matthew begins, and it kind of continues through. Luke highlights this, I think, perhaps a bit more, but how surprising it is who Jesus chooses as his company. The type of person that the Lord Christ surrounds himself with is shocking. And here in Matthew, this uh, specific gospel, the author is attempting to, to write the record of who Christ is, but structure it in such a way that it would appeal particularly to the Jews. He quotes the Old Testament constantly. He's constantly referring back and referencing other passages and explaining who Christ is, but also uh, addressing for the Jews the discrepancy between who they thought was coming as the Messiah and who they got. They've been planning all along from the Old Testament and understanding rightly that the one who's coming would be the great king. He would be the high king. He would be the one who came and and righted all wrongs, who got rid of, of violence and injustice, who got rid of evil and impurity, the one who made all things right. They were correct in that. The part they missed, however, that is, was that his ministry would come in two phases. That he would be the suffering servant on his first arrival and would be the victorious judge in his second arrival. And so as the Jews are interacting with the arrival of Jesus, they have this kind of tremendous kind of challenge printed, uh, presented before them of going, okay, we have this suffering servant, we have this lowly man in front of us, and we've been expecting the high king. What do we do? Matthew has framed it out and kind of helping acknowledge both of those tendencies, both of those tensions with the genealogy there starting in chapter 1. It's, it's framing out, setting the stage. Look, you were expecting the high king. That's what you got. This is the line of the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. And guess what? It leads to Jesus. He is the high king. He's the one you've been waiting for. But... Israel is a mess. Governed by a foreign power, a a conquered nation, and there's the tension. The king of the Jews is governed by Rome. The tension. The high king, the king of the Jews, born to a poor family with no great esteem. The high king of the Jews, born of a virgin. That would have been complicated. Again, in a time in which adultery could have been punished by death. 
having been raised in a small town with all of the insults and accusations that you know would have come in a small town, uh, being raised where everybody could do the math as to when he was conceived and born. A challenge. Now in chapter 2 is where it kind of doubles down the, the tremendous tension between who Jesus is and who they expect. With the arrival of the wise men. And I'm going to suggest that's actually no different, really, the challenge for us that is for the Jews. It's the one I've been pushing on for you know, two weeks now. Are we going to, to open our ears and to open our minds and to listen to who Jesus explains he is in the scriptures? Or are we going to kind of bring our own understanding to the text? Listen to the God that we want to hear our own invention or will we shape ourselves by the text? First thing to see in the text for us to be challenged by, shaped by, is that God's revelation, God's calling is the foundation of the gospel message. God's calling is the foundation of the gospel message. Now, uh, you know this part of the story well. Preaching these passages in some ways are challenging in a different way because you know it so well. You know how the story goes. Jesus is born. Matthew skips over that. Skips over the, um, the shepherds skips over the the manger, uh, skips over all of that, and and jumps to probably a month at least into the future. Jesus is uh, a newborn, perhaps maybe a little bit older than that, after Jesus was born, and jumps directly into one of the tensions the Jews would have felt. What happened in that occasion? Well, here we're introduced with the star. As part of the birth narrative, the Lord provides what uh, I'm going to suggest is a divinely ordered, uh, unique inside creation, special, miraculous star. It's behaved like no other star before or since ever has. It was a bright and glowing light. I suspect it was not all the way up in the sky the way that the rest of the stars are, but even lower. And I suspect, really honestly from this text, that it wasn't a steady star, meaning it didn't just stay lit for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks while the Magi followed it. Instead, what happens is the story as it's told, you have a group of magi in a far-off land that are astrologers. Part astrologer, part astronomer studying the stars, and a bright light appears on the horizon. It probably appeared on the horizon, I would guess, either every evening or every morning. It didn't stay all of the time, and enough for them to decide to follow it. It appears in the land clearly enough that they know a direction and they follow that direction until it leads them to a region. It leads them to the region of Judea and specifically to the region of Jerusalem. And I suspect at that point the star probably stopped, which is why we get this entire interchange. (laughs) If they'd known where the star was leading them, they wouldn't have stopped and talked to Herod. So instead they go to the local ruler who happens to be the king of the Jews 
and have a conversation. Saying, hey, we've figured out along the way that somehow, somewhere, this star has appeared and it's pointing to the way to the king of the Jews. A divine star. A unique star. A star that's behaved as no other star ever has. Well, that's part of the story that we're familiar with. It's the part that doesn't seem to give us too much fits. The Magi, however, the wise men as they're called, may be something we need to spend a little bit more energy on. A number of things. First off, again, Michael ruins your favorite Christmas carols. They're not kings. And this word's a technical word. We know exactly uh, within kind of certain boundaries what this word means. And uh, the root of it, certainly, they're not kings. Uh, The Magi, in fact, were specifically not kings, we know, because we know that office functioned in service to kings. Think about when uh, Moses interacts with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has his court magicians. They're able to replicate some of the miracles. The magicians are not the Pharaoh. They're in service to the Pharaoh. Likewise in Daniel, when he goes to interpret the dreams. In fact, actually there, it is actually literally magi that he's competing against. They're not the king. They're not Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, they're in service to Nebuchadnezzar. That's going to be important in just a moment as we contemplate what they're doing here. You have a group of men who in their official duty, they are in service to the king. That is extremely important. Secondly, and equally important, is they are absolute 100% pagans. These are Gentiles. These are men who would have served a pagan king in pagan service with no care for the Jews specifically. In fact, actually, we know most likely, almost, I would say, with great probability, these guys specifically were either from what we would call today Iraq or Iran. They're either uh, Babylonian, less likely, more likely, they're probably Persian. Uh, from the Medo-Persian Empire. They're, the, again, the, the great descendants of the ones that Daniel himself was competing against to interpret the dreams. Part of the way we know that is the word magi is not actually a Greek word. It's Persian word that the Greeks then adopted, which then we adopted and turned it into the word magician. That's where we get it from. They're still very revered in those cultures, and in that time were particularly revered. So, not kings. Second, they're not Jews. And third, their, their job description was an incredibly complicated job description because they were, at minimum, magicians. And we can certainly say at minimum they were that. At maximum, they, they were much more than that. Their job was part advisor, part astronomy, part astrology, part fortune teller, part magician, part dream interpreter, part military tactician, part um, scientist. Their job description was very full because the, the, the dividing line between the mystical supernatural magic element and the world of science was very blurry at that point. You know, I mean, you can actually go back and read the stories of 
earlier literature, you read Connecticut yanking King Arthur's court. You remember that? If you read that in middle school or high school where uh, this guy, is, in theory, is transported back in time to King Arthur's time and just his basic understanding of how science works today, they revere him as one of the greatest magicians the world has ever seen. These magi are probably the same. They're this blending of, of science and magic so that it's all very, very complicated and very mystical. Well, okay, cool. That's neat. I got to learn something about the, the wise men, not we three kings. Probably weren't three. Could have been two. Could have been 20. Text doesn't tell us. So what does it matter, though? Well, it, it actually would have mattered very importantly to the Jews specifically because they would not have had the Harry Potter Lord of the Rings hang-up that we, our current culture, has today. Our current culture has been largely shaped by Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and other things like that, where we hear that term uh, magi or wise men or magician, and we immediately elevate that in our mind. We think of somebody that's wise and someone that's, that's knowledgeable and someone that knows what they're doing. It's interesting. In Jewish culture, it would have been something a little different. Leviticus 20 tells us specifically if a person turns to or listens to mediums or necromancers that God will set his face against that person and in verse 27 they are to be put to death. Both the magician and the person who follows the magician. Micah chapter 5, interestingly, exactly what Matthew is quoting here in verse 6, if you were to go down just a handful of verses later, the proof that the Messiah is here is that he would, and I'm quoting, will cut off the sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more fortune tellers in your midst. That's part of the proof of the Messiah's arrival is that he would get rid of these false teachers, these magicians which deserve to be murdered, you know, deserve to be killed, uh, executed, and he would remove them and their lies from the people of God. So what you actually have here is actually a much more complicated situation. You have in the arrival of Jesus a young woman who's pregnant out of wedlock, which would have been punishable by death, with a birth and announcement in a dream to her husband, which would have been complicated, married to the king whose line is in decline, and his royal court is comprised of pagans who should have been executed according to Jewish law. If you're going to judge a man by the company he keeps, Jesus' arrival is complex to say the least. I mean, the only guy who's not really in serious hot water at this point is Joseph himself. And I love how at the very beginning, just even in the arrival of Jesus, it's showcasing that, look, God's calling. It's the foundation of the gospel message. Because here what happens is so intriguing. The Lord has placed a star inside creation. He's placed this unique moment of brilliance to bring to himself a group of pagans that by Jewish law would have deserved execution and places them in the birth narrative of Christ. And in fact, actually, if you're reading kind of cover to cover, these are the first people to show up and worship the Messiah. 
pagan magicians who could have been punished by death, they show up to worship the Messiah. Again, it it, it takes some of the sting out of this because our current culture's great love affair with magicians and the mystical, but uh, in in the Jewish land, this would have been, uh, I mean, shocking how inappropriate this would be. I mean, how grossly inappropriate it would be. I mean, like if if we're talking kind of emotional punch, it would be like opening a new daycare and inviting the local sex offender to be the one to snap the cord, to like, you know, cut the ribbon to open the daycare. Right? Everybody would be like, is this really happening? Why on earth did they bring that guy? That's the one you're choosing to open the daycare? That, that, That would have been the emotional punch to this. And I love the fact that Matthew's actually framing out from the very beginning of, look, Jesus is in the business of surrounding himself with people that don't belong there. Jesus is in the business of surrounding himself with people who don't belong, who don't deserve to be in his presence. He's the high king. If he were to surround himself with the people that he deserved to be with, first off, he would never have been born at all. He would have stepped inside just directly, formed his own body, and stepped into that. His his entire court would have been comprised of angels and angels only because there's no sinless people, and everyone else he would have just simply destroyed whenever they met him. That's the the judge the Jews are expecting, the the high king who surrounds himself with only glory and with only justice. And it's interesting that instead Jesus surrounds himself with grace and mercy. So that even in the rival, his birth narrative, the Lord is showcasing this, look, here's a star, come meet Jesus. Matthew showing that Jesus' ministry is all about God calling the unqualified. It's introduced from the very beginning. It's the heart of the gospel that, that the Lord himself is calling the unqualified. He's bringing the undeserving into his presence and transforming them, pulling forth praise and worship from those that you would never have guessed. And here's the reality is that is our story. I recognize there's probably two different categories of folks in the room, and there's, I'm sure, more, but at least two that I want to address. Uh, There are some in here that acknowledge quite readily, emotionally they understand, they don't deserve to be in God's presence. They battle shame and self-loathing and and, and discouragement and disgust in a way that is so rich. And and I would just lovingly say, hey, just a reminder, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He, He knows you. You feel like you don't deserve to be there. Okay, right on. That's the heart of the gospel. He's bringing you anyways. This is how merciful of a God we serve that knowingly, knowing your mess, he brings you in anyways. There is, however, a second category, and this is, I think, probably a little bit more common in Presbyterianism, at least for some, is that we've forgotten that we don't deserve to be in God's presence. That perhaps instead we've just grown accustomed and maybe a little bit narcissistic and say, well, yeah, all those other bad people, I mean, that was a problem for them, but I'm all right. 
And for those that struggle with that, I might just lovingly say, um, you might want to reconsider your humility, friend. Reconsider your own sinful condition to marvel at who God is. And secondly, as we see in the text, this, uh, God's calling is the foundation for salvation. Uh, secondly, is uh, the, the proximity to Christ. Just being near Him is not enough for salvation. It's not enough just to be near Jesus in order to know salvation. That's not enough. And the interesting thing, these uh, magi, however many there are, the, the, we'll call them wise men. That's what the text uses. They were uh, considered the wise. But these pagan magicians, they show up uh, and they go to interact with Herod the king. Herod is an interesting figure in church history. He is, uh, in many ways, a brilliant and uh, evil leader. If you were to ever um, uh, talk about, you know, kind of a Machiavellian ruler, this is the guy. A guy who figured out how to govern at all costs and how to, to be successful. And you have this tremendous interchange with these almost seemingly naive magicians that come in and ask the king of the Jews where the king of the Jews is. Hey, Herod, we know you're the king of this area, but you're not the guy we're looking for. Uh, we saw a star that, that showed up. We followed it, and the star is pointing us to the king of the Jews. We've come to worship the king of the Jews. So again, here, here's the kind of proto-gospel laid out. Uh, the real king, the high king has showed up. What sort of response are we going to have? And we have three responses that are already taking place. One, we have the magi who are in process of worshiping, and we're going to get to that a little bit fuller in a moment. Uh, secondly, as you see uh, this tremendous response from the Jews, and I, I think this has been out of all the parts of the, the kind of birth narrative for the last 20 years, this is the response that has been the most shocking and the most disturbing to me. Verses 4 through 6, the Jewish leaders explain the answer to that question. Herod gathers them together. He asks the, the chief priests, the scribes of the people, so he asks the religious leaders and says, where was the Messiah supposed to be born? So you know the Bible, you know the Old Testament. Where is the Messiah? Where is the anointed? Where is the high king supposed to be born? And the interesting thing is they know the answer. They don't have to go look it up. It's not like they're, you know, so unlearned. They don't know. They, they're ready to quote kind of, you know, they know Micah right off the top of their head. And they give the answer. Well, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They told him, verse 5, this is it. He's born in Bethlehem of Judea. And he uh, here paraphrases, verse 6 is a paraphrase, not a direct quote. The Messiah is born in Bethlehem. They know the Messiah is here. There's a divine star telling them. They know where he's supposed to come from. And yet the most intriguing thing is they can't be bothered to look. They know the answers. They know the answer is better than anyone else in the room, and they cannot be bothered to do anything. Did the Jews send a delegation to go meet the Christ? No. Do the chief priests send a delegation from the temple to go meet the anointed, the Messiah? No. 
Do they go to worship, to join with the angels, to follow this miraculous star? No, they, they, just, they just can't be bothered. They cannot be bothered even though they know the truth. And this is a warning to the people of God. And I would say, kiddos, this is my great warning to you. This is the great danger for those that grow up in the church as they grow up knowing where Christ is to be found, but never actually meeting him. See, that's, I think, the thing that's so disturbing to me about the Jewish response. They know exactly where the Messiah is to be found. But they can't be bothered to get off their rear ends to go meet him. Put a different way, knowing facts about Jesus are good, but it's not enough. I would humbly suggest this is one of the great challenges for the church in the South, particularly. We have the great privilege of living in what remains of the Bible Belt, and so there is a common assumption of who Jesus is, but it is not enough to know about him. We must meet with him. Herod, on the other hand, takes a very different tactic. For him, it's not just one of kind of passive apathy. For him, it's active hatred. Herod is threatened by this king of the Jews and actively seeks to to kill him, to get rid of him, to remove him from the equation. And you have this tremendous interchange where he calls the wise men off to the side and says, hey, tell me when you find him so I can go worship him too. And uh, Herod is easy to think of at this point as a cartoon villain, but it's, it's actually not. Herod is a, he's an amazing figure. Herod was a great builder. He's the one who's helped expand the temple at this point. He's, he's increased its size, its beauty, and its brilliance. He's um, participated in all sorts of kind of building projects to make the region look more beautiful and to look more excellent. But he has done it by being one of the most vicious rulers in this area's history. By this point in his life, he has killed, I think, all of his family members except for one. And that's including his own children. Because any time he felt somebody might be a threat to him, he's killed them and killed all of them. There's one child remaining, and that one's going to die shortly after this passage. We also know this is most likely taking in 4 to 5 B.C., somewhere in that era, uh, and this is most likely the last year of his life. So in this time, Herod is most likely a 69 or 70-year-old man, which by today's standards is not extremely old. By that time standards is a very old man. And so what you have is a group of wise men showing up and saying, hey, look, the king of the Jews is born, and Herod himself cannot stand it, even though he's an old man, already surpassed what would have been considered a very long life. He can't deal with the idea of someone else having power and strength and glory, and so he seeks to, rule, to, uh, to root him out. He can't give up the idea of even being um, threatened in his power. And the real issue we know is that Herod would then have to obey a greater king. Herod wants to be his own god. He wants to be his own boss. He wants to be his own king. He wants to do it the way that he wants, when he wants, how he wants. He wants everything to be lived on his own terms, which again, even why he kill his own kids. 
And this again a challenge for us as we interact here is, and I would suggest probably more for the adults in the room, is for us it's not an, an active hatred of Jesus. It's more of this, this quiet, subtle rebellion of, look, I just want to live life my own way. I just don't want you to tell me how I have to live. I want to do it my way. That's the heart of what Herod's doing. He's saying, I don't want Jesus to have any sort of rule over my life. I don't want him to have any say in my uh, job, any say in my family, any say in my kingdom, because it's mine. It's mine. And again, I would suggest we do that with probably a sad regularity. Say no to the Lord Christ. You have no say in this part of my life. Who are you to tell me how my job is supposed to work or how my identity is supposed to work or how my marriage is supposed to work or how I'm supposed to live with my sibling or whatever it is? The contrast, of course, is the Magi. (laughs) The pagan, Gentile magicians that plead with Herod to let them into the kingdom in essence so they could go find this king of the Jews and so they could then worship him here in verse 9 and following after listening to the king they, they go and they leave again the implication in the grammar in verse 9 is that while they were talking to the king the star wasn't shining is the implication and once they leave the king and go looking again the star shows up again and whoa behold it's back let's follow it and they take off following the star and it leads them that little way to Bethlehem and as they get to Bethlehem it proceeds to move throughout the uh, town at this point again it's probably a good bit of time later and so you have an issue where he's no longer living in the stable which would have been uh, you know the the mangers in a barn kind of attached to the house Um, the the census the you know the the population is dropped enough now that they're probably staying with family members uh, living in a very, very small room house, but they've moved into the house. The star leads them to the house, and here um, the Magi meet Jesus. And I love verse 10. You have here kind of language breaking down, trying to describe the fullness of human experience and emotional response. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's trying to fit so many descriptor terms into a small package that it's like it's running over. It's, you know, where you try to pick up too many grapes in one hand and stuff just starts spilling out. There's too much excitement in, in one phrase. And they go into the house and they see the child with Mary. And then what an intriguing thing. They fall down and worshiped him. And the term that's used here for worship is the idea of it's heart worship. It's spiritual, it's rich, obedient worship. This is not just the bowing the knee to a foreign king. This is not the honor I would give the Queen of England if I met her, you know. It's lovely to meet you, ma'am. Thank you for your leadership. This is like the worship you would give to God Almighty. You get the impression here, this is the byproduct of conversion. These are Christians. These are now men that we will meet in the life to come. They bow before the Lord Jesus. And then they do something that, again, I think the significance is overlooked a lot of times, where they open their treasures and they give him three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's why we assume three wise men. We don't know. The significance of these gifts is incredibly important, though, because, again, remember I said at the very beginning, how do magi work? They were royal counselors who pledged themselves to a king. What are they doing right here? 
Well, they're performing the ceremony where they acknowledge the authority of their king. That's why they're giving these gifts to Mary. I mean, what a more incongruent setting, right? You have this very poor family that's probably staying with other family. At this point, you might have, what, seven, eight people living in a you know, 20 by 20 room. It, it, it's packed. It would have been crazy. And here, here come these wise men, probably dressed in the fanciest clothing some of these people might have seen outside the temple. And they come in bringing more wealth than they could have conceived of. And they begin to give this wealth, not to mom and dad, but to the child. And saying, this child is our king. Our service is rendered to him forever. What they've done is they switched allegiance. Whichever king they were serving previously is now that relationship is the secondary relationship. Their primary relationship is obedience to the king, this child, the king of the Jews. And I would end with one simple challenge. I think, again, all of us that we, we claim to be Christians and we know that it's an easy thing in our life. We, we long to worship Jesus. We acknowledge that's a good thing, a right thing, a thing we long to do. I do wonder sometimes, perhaps, if it might be appropriate for us to just pause and consider that if our lives were told in a story, if it were written in a book... If the people who read about our lives would be able to see, oh, look, here are a people group who have pledged themselves to a king. I acknowledge that one of the great challenges that we have in our current culture is that we are filled with such affluence that we can afford to have distractions everywhere. And the the downside of that is that we can feel torn in a million different directions because we're pulled by a million different things that we think are good and right and true and beautiful. And the result of that is that we could easily live a life that looks very, very busy with good things, but to an outside observer never looks like it's actually a Christian thing. And I would lovingly and humbly suggest it would be a good thing for us to at least periodically observe. What does our life look like? We'll ask it differently. If you had a foreign exchange student move into your home for a year, would they think, oh, here's a family that lives in a service to a king? Would they have an idea just by the, the observation of your life? Maybe you say, yeah, okay, good, praise God. Let's figure out how to do that better. Maybe you say no, and it's time to reevaluate just a little bit how your life is. For we do believe the Lord is active in sharing generosity with people that's manifested by inviting people who don't belong in his presence, people just like us, bringing us into his presence, and then challenging us to respond with something other than apathy or hatred, but instead responding with obedience and worship. May it be that we ourselves fill our lives, the days that God has given us, with that obedience and that worship in a holy fashion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your spiritual food here as it tells us of the Lord Jesus. And we acknowledge our frailty and ask where we are weak. 
that Christ would be strong. Oh, Lord, forgive us, we pray. Give us renewed love, renewed delight in the glory of King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.